One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Denise Hartsey, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. I am so happy to be here. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. How, How are you, are you? Jeremy? Mate, the Plastic Forum and the Ocean Lovers Festival, uh, I have to say it was a great turnout. What did you think? I love it when people get together and talk about solving the world's problems and obviously ocean plastic is one of them and it has to be said there was a, a number of ex- superstar panelists and presenters but there was one shining light clearly denise hardesty you know brad scientist. you say that to all your guests <laughs> I know. and in fact i know he does because i heard him say it several times yesterday and once when i thought i was special now i just feel like one of the masses oh, my, <laughs> one of the masses of masses of superstars Mate, there you, were, uh, you there said were... superstars uh, look a hundred times <laughs> he did but there were a lot of superstars in that room are you denying the superstar? Superstar. i think you're superstar, the superstar and then yeah. the next person is a superstar <laughs> you go well Am I just like that superstar? I mean, you know. No, we're, we're all our own unique snowflake superstars, That's each right. and every one of us. I really enjoyed it. Mm. I thought I loved hearing some of the provocative questions and thoughts from the young members of the audience. Yeah. You know, I think there were some really valid points raised. It was exciting to hear about some of the new tools and technologies that are out there. And I loved the format. Instead of sitting around passively listening to a bunch of speakers, I love the interactive dialogue and having that engagement with the audience. I think that's where it's at. We've got to have a conversation. There were some really interesting questions posed. There was a few from uh, various young individuals in the room, and there was one that for me stood out as well. Like there was a girl who raised the question around, and it was directed towards Allegra Spender, federal MP, and also Marjorie O'Neill, who's a state MP, and said, look, I'm trying to raise awareness around this issue. I'm basically screaming as loud as I can. Nothing's really changing. What do we need to do to drive change? That was pretty crap. And Allegra's response, and I I don't mind saying it. It was, you got to yell louder. Shout louder. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I think I don't want to yell. Actually, I want to have a conversation. Mm. I want to have an informed conversation. Mm. And while I'd love to see people making decisions based upon knowledge, I know that we need to touch people where it matters to them emotionally, because that's how people make decisions. Another thing I would say is actually a heck of a lot has changed and in a really relatively quick time frame. We can't see that when we're super young or when we're really new to an area because we don't have the breadth and depth of experience to see that. So yes, it's frustrating. Yes, there's more to do. Yes, there's a growing issue. Absolutely. All those things are true. And the dialogue is quickly and profoundly changing. This new United Nations UNEA 5.2 resolution, that is a global game changer. And the fact that we have such a short time frame, but the countries have decided that we're going to come together. We're going to have a legally binding agreement with the member states of the United Nations. And we're going to do that in the next couple of years. That is unprecedented. That is tremendous. And so that is heartening. What we also want to see 
or what I would like to see is that the working together of industry, NGOs, volunteer groups, scientists, politicians, there's a role for each and every one of us and we all need to be there at the table. So that let's have a dialogue. Let's not have to shout. You got shouted at too, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm used to it. And yeah, you took it on the chin. Well, you know, what's the point in I'm going to behave in a professional, appropriate manner, no matter what is slung my way. Maybe one way to view it is if you're doing work that matters, then you're going to ruffle some feathers. And the fact that we can see nearly a 30% decrease in coastal litter within Australia at the continent scale, that doesn't mean every single site. Read the paper. It actually points out some areas are dirtier, some areas are cleaner. But as a whole, the fact that we've seen such a huge change in six years is pretty amazing. And to me, it's not about like, okay, yes, you can document that and you can say that fact. 29% decrease around the continent of Australia. Let's look under the hood and talk about the why of it, what's really mattering. You know, what's making that difference there? And that to me is the important part of that work. You know, the fact that we can look at and say people do want to do the right thing and they're more likely to do it when and where we make it easy for them. So let's have bins, let's have the infrastructure, let's have the support and the resources for local councils so that people can do the right thing because they want to. Yeah. And look, you talk about having that conversation at the table, bringing all these different collective individuals and organizations together. And that for me was the best thing that happened. We had federal, state, local government. We had Who NGOs. There was a, a couple of councillors oh, yeah, in the right. room. Yeah, but yeah, also yeah. And Sydney Coastal Councils was in yeah. the room, which yeah. was great. There were a few people from there. Yeah. Fantastic. Mayor Paul Masalos from Waverley Council was yep. a panellist as well. We had NGOs, activists, obviously students, Ocean Protect were there, stormwater engineers, etc. And from my perspective, historically, there's so much attention on this issue, but we're all battling it in parallel to get together and collaborate and share our ideas and insights for me was a real positive and just in the organization of this event leading up to it we've seen a whole bunch of collaboration happen just in the few little virtual meetings we had in the lead up so spinning out of the event i'm positive as well i can empathize with the young people in terms of change isn't happening fast enough it never feels fast enough. it never does it never is right like we want to change things overnight absolutely yeah obviously you've been looking at this issue i was talking to you last night you know the fact that csiro your organization is sort of so heavily involved in this plastic pollution issue previously i'm guessing it wasn't even on the radar no i mean so my team and i we started working on this issue about 15 years ago Mm. and that was really new and really the place we started was looking at the federal threat abatement plan that identified plastic as a key threatening process, meaning that it has negative impacts on threatened marine wildlife. So turtles, dolphins, those sorts of things. And we actually looked at what the plan said and identified a bunch of knowledge gaps. And then, you know, we're a research agency. Then it's let's go out and start trying to address and to answer some of those questions and understand the why, understand what we can do better and do differently. From that really has stemmed this body of work that's been not just domestic, but it's also been international. And we're doing a lot of work with United Nations. We work with a lot of governments. We work with a lot of citizen scientists group. We work with universities. We work with partners on the ground all over the world and in Australia, you know, and as you mentioned, partnerships and collaboration, we're working with Conservation Volunteers Australia. We're working with Cleanup Australia. And one of the beauties of being here and hanging out, you know, is getting to talk with Graham from Sea Shepherd and stuff. And they're like, yeah, we do want to share information. People now know that the Australian government has put together and is supporting. They want to see the sharing of knowledge and information. And so one of the things that we at CSIRO are doing is trying to help put together a national portal so that 
all organizations, individuals, groups, states, local councils, etc. They own their data. And if they choose to participate and to share it, then we can get a better understanding of what's going on within and across Australia. You know, in Graham, they do these amazing cleanups. They work with indigenous communities. They work out on country. They do this fantastic work. He's like, yeah, we want to do something so that the data can be more useful. So it's like, well, let me help you do that if you want to. He's game and keen. And so some of his team will actually go out and collect data. It will be three transects and then they'll do their cleanup. And then we can actually utilize that information with the CSIRO method that we use and amalgamate that with the great cleanup data that they collect so that we get a much richer, more holistic picture. And so that we can then make comparisons in all these places around the country and beyond. And so those relationships with groups like Sea Shepherd and other groups, is they're fundamentally important for all of us within this country. The thing that I took away from what you just said was if people choose to we worked on a piece of work a few years ago where a certain council was keen to release the data and then at the last minute didn't really. People have to be courageous enough to put that data out there because it's going to tell a story and it's going to tell a story it whether it's good or bad or different. How do we empower people to, to put that data out there? And for the listeners, it's data about the job they're doing within their own local government, whether mm. it's a good job or a bad job. But if you think about it, councils or, or, or any organisation – doesn't want to go out and tell the public a bad mm. story. So how do we encourage people to go out and bag themselves, I guess? Mm. Data isn't good or bad. It doesn't have judgment. It's just, it's information that we want to tease out of this data that's there. And so what we can do is instead of highlighting, oh, this is a really dirty area, what we, you know, this is a really clean area. It's like, look at the change that's happened in this amount of time. And this is the way that we drive change. And that information is really, really powerful. So I think if we look at it as a resource rather than maybe more of the carrot than the stick, I think the last thing that we want is for people to feel like if they share information, it's going to be used in a way that's inappropriate or yeah, that, that sort that's of thing. Scientific, that's I know, and I'm a science geek. You know. I'm a total scientist, <laughs> absolutely. Let's be real. Sorry, I, don't know. I love your answer, but no one, especially in, in political areas, are going to go out and, and tell a bad story about themselves. This is a hypothetical. Why would the mayor of Manly release data that said they weren't doing a very good job? Why would they do that? That's politics. Listening to Allegra, etc. Politicians got their hands tied. So I understand what you're saying, but how, how do we as a community scientist, as practitioners, how do we encourage people to release data, even though it will tell a bad story? You're right. It's tricky. And I think for me, one of the things that's really important, because, you know, I have that issue or challenge too, right? So we're asked sometimes, share this data. And I'm like, wait a minute, but I want you to look at it in the full context. We have people in all the time who are like, my beach is still dirty. I've been cleaning it up every single day for 30 years and I still see the same amount of trash or I see more trash. But they're actually not including the relevant information in how they're viewing the data, right? So you can't compare Bondi to remote Western Australia to remote Tasmania, right? You need to look at it in context. And that means how many people live in the area? How many car parking spaces are there to get there? What's the accessibility? What are the bus lines and train lines and things that get there? Because if all we do is look at and count pieces of trash, or if all we do is look at and count the quantity of plastic items in a stormwater drain, but that we don't consider the context in which that asset sits or where that data lies, we're doing 
ourselves a disservice and we're not even understanding the data that we have. So you're talking and, about land use. Well, well, in effect, yeah, like land use and ha- yeah, yeah, all yeah. those sorts of things. But, you know, as you say, okay, how do we encourage people to share that information? I think we one thing we try to do is we try to make it apolitical. We try to make it neutral in terms of no one's looking for a particular piece of information to beat you over the head with. What we want to do is to understand a problem so that we can make better decisions and empower solutions. And so I do think that context matters. Asking councils to share data, asking state agencies to share data, the value of that data, I think, is really shifting for people. And so we're starting to see and to have requests to participate because people want to be able to measure change. They want to know, was it better? Is it worse before or after a flood, before or after this major event? And so if we contextualize the information and tell a richer, truer story rather than a sexy headline that has a winner and a loser, then I think we're having a more nuanced and perhaps a more difficult conversation, but it's actually more genuine and it's more reflective of what's really going on. You you can't solve a problem unless you know you've got a problem. Indeed. And acknowledge it. Acknowledge it. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But also have a good understanding of that problem. And that for me is where data science comes in. Jeremy and myself have mentioned many times that the fact that we rely on the science that comes out of various organizations. And from my perspective, you've been a a key part of that because in the absence of that, people go down the wrong path. Well, it means that we think that we really are eating a credit card worth of plastic every oh, week. Which, here we go. I love well, it. Can we talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> we can. Yeah. Quick, we won't we we dwell on it too long, but the, 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 the Denise is uh, referring to a statement which has got a lot of media attention previously, and it was raised around the potential human health consequences of plastic ingestion. And there's a clickbait news article flying around the various outlets saying that the average human consumes a credit card of plastic every week. Yep. Denise, is that true? In my opinion, as a scientist, and when you read the information and unpack the layers of extrapolation from which that number comes, I would say that is not correct. That is not factually correct. It sounds really remarkable. It's the kind of short, sharp, snappy factoid that gets people reading. It it gets people reading. It really helps raise awareness. I think sometimes we do a disservice by going for the sexy statement rather than having the more nuanced conversation. But people do. They want a headline. Mm. And, you know, this actually came out of something that's a report. And a report is different than a publication. A publication means it's peer reviewed, which means it's critically analyzed by people that you may or may not know in the field. They may or may not have grudges. They may or might not who know who you are because we try to do a a blind or a double blind review process, but it means it hasn't been vetted. And anyone can write a report that says anything and put it out there. I mean, look at social media, look at, you know, websites and anything can get out there. But just because it's out there doesn't mean it's true. So please read critically, ask somebody that you trust or whose opinion you value on things, but read for yourself and judge for yourself. And when you actually look at the report and actually now when you talk to people who work for the organization that put out that report about eating a credit card worth of plastic, there is a plastics listserv that's a global community. And one of the people from that organization even wrote and said, oh, we've been trying to walk that one back. And once it's out, it's out. Whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. So what 
what are we eating? I mean, you've read the report. Is, is it like a spoon's worth of plastic? Is it a... Well, you, okay. You've, so you've read the report in full and, and have got a far greater understanding of it than, than myself. Well, I mean, I'm so. not, I can't quantify and tell you exactly how much plastic you're eating each week. I mean, how... What? From the report, I'm saying. Uh, well, the report says it's a credit card worth of plastic, but um, I don't buy that. I don't think it's actually anywhere near that. But we're getting plastic. We are consuming it through the air that we breathe. You know, you walk through a building that has carpet. There are carpet tiles in that. They're made from synthetic materials. Tea so bags. Yeah, you're getting it everywhere all the time. We've seen the reports about from your table salt. You're getting it from everywhere. I mean, the thing to table me is... Table salt. I haven't read that one. I love table salt. And beer. Oh. It's in your beer. It's in your water. I mean, it's funny, right? Because... How can it be in my beer if it's an aluminium can? Well... Heavily filtered. And yeah, you know, it's, it's in the beer making process. Really? It's everywhere all the time and it's increasing. Okay, so what are we going to do about that? Are we yep. all going to stop eating and drinking? And no, 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 we're not. We're not. So, but, but, but we can minimize our consumption if we know where the key sources are based sure, on science. Sure. So, I mean, one thing I would not do is I would not heat my food in plastic. Yeah, yeah, that's done. Don't don't especially that anything that's acidic. So, anything that's tomato sauce based, pasta with red sauce, don't heat that and put it in a glass container. As a kid, I grew up having sandwiches in Ziploc bags. So, sure, I would have gotten a little bit of plastic. What happens to it? It goes right through us, right? And one of the big questions, the Huge question everybody wants to know. What is the impact of health. ingesting plastic on human health? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know because, and we've had this discussion before, we're not chopping up humans and doing autopsies and going, why did this person Well, die? And, and where do you get a sampling of people yeah, anywhere yeah. in the world that haven't come into contact with plastic? We're doing a lot of work on sea mammals and we're able to, to look what's going on in those type of animals. On your license, I think I've said it before, if you're a donor, why can't you be a donor for plastic research? Well, maybe you could be. Maybe you need to start a new campaign to make well, that part of the health we're, system. If we're, if we're, no, hold on. But if we're not going to start exploring the stuff. <laughs> so we are exploring. There are amazing labs around the world that are focusing on studying the potential impacts. So presence doesn't equal harm. And so occurrence doesn't equal damage. But how do we tease that apart? It's really tricky. But there are a couple of good labs in Europe, in North America, et cetera, that are focusing on that. There's a new lab at University of Queensland that's a super clean lab that I think has been supported by Mindaroo and UQ, where they're trying to look at the presence and the quantification of plastics. And the presence is the first step. That's not the same as looking at the harm or the impact. We know that there are plasticizers, so there's materials in plastics that are, you know, are hormone mimics and that those sorts of issues or challenges are there, but we can't quantify yet that actual impact to humans, at least not in the work that I have seen that's out. For me, it doesn't pass the pub test. Plastic's made from oil. We know it's in our body everywhere. From an engineering point of view, shouldn't you be taking the precautionary approach? Of course. Absolutely. Yeah, as an environmental engineer, of course you take the precautionary approach. And when it's certainly when it's minimize practical. it. Yeah. yeah. Be it. smart. Yeah. I know, but I, I don't hit you know. your food and, and plastic. Uh, don't suck your phone. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. It's, it's, it's really, tri it's really tricky, but you know, don't do it, guys. You, you've got to stop that happening. Especially with an iPhone 12. Don't do it. <laughs> but we've had a few podcasts about where are the key sources of microplastic uh, ingestion. Yeah. Don't drink uh, bottled water. Yeah, you used to drink out of a plastic bottle. Do you still? Uh, 
well, that's a multi-use plastic bottle. So yeah, but hot. do you drink out of it? Because it's still shedding. Yeah, he does. Is it really? Yeah, yeah it's, it is, mate. Even it's a multi-purpose. Sure. Yeah, it is, mate. Remember we, oh, we, I thought the single use was a much more fragile. Well, they plastic. are more fragile. <laughs> However, anything that we're using that's plastic yeah, is still mate, going I'm to still shed. I'm so surprised. But when I'm like a t-shirt, when, yeah. like, you know, those stretchy tights that yeah, you wear, Brad? All the time. You know, like when you go swimming and you're out there parading around Bondi. Is that what I mean, Denise? I don't know. With your black toenails, man. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Rock and roll, baby. Rock and That's roll. Right. No, but seriously, but no, yeah, back look, to it. Like, yeah, yeah the okay. sure you can minimise. Yeah, look. it's hard, and it's from the everyday consumer. It's it's, it's very confusing, well, even for me. Like I thought I was okay with the multi-use bottle. So you're is, better I, I, than with a single-use plastic bottle, and it's still going to potentially shed plastic. Yeah, kind of yeah. like clothing, yeah, right? Cleaner. With a plastic sponge. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. and that's the other thing we talked about, like yeah. with a plastic scrubbing brush. Yeah. 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 And then which there's is obviously breaking, carpets. Yeah. All those sorts um, of things. Obviously, you mentioned my lycra, which I parade around in apparently uh, down, I, down Bondi Beach. I, I guess I guess I fast forward to, great, we do some great research. Yep. And in a couple of years' time, they go, hmm, look, we've found out this is actually really harmful. The world will erupt. We were like, but you guys have known that we've been ingesting this for, for mm-hmm. years, but we couldn't prove it. Well, why, why did you not be more precautionary? You know what I mean? Well, like, so I think people are really trying to take that precautionary approach. You know, we're trying, people who have the privilege of being able to are trying to minimize it. People who have the privilege to have the education to be aware of it. Right. You know, yeah. but that doesn't happen everywhere. And really it's a social equity and it's a social justice issue. So it disproportionately affects marginalized communities, people who don't have the wealth to be able to afford a reusable, you know, metal bottle or those sorts of things. You know, Australia is definitely the lucky country, right? We're doing it really well here. Let's look at some of what happens in other communities and other countries around the world where they may not have some of the benefits that we have here. Yeah. Look, can I change tack? Absolutely. Jeremy likes doing segues, but uh, look, I'm going to steal his thunder. But I, I want to hear the segue. Come on, Jeremy, no, what no, do you no, got no, for no, me? Oh, no. Well, I was just going to just dive into, like, like, obviously science is really important, but you've put together or co-authored a really interesting and important scientific paper, which I was keen to talk about, and it's in relation to fishnets. Yep. It's called Global Estimates for Fishing Gear Lost to the Ocean Each Year. And look, the numbers are... Out of this world, clickbait. if I'm honest. What's clickbait? Um, so okay, you want the clickbait. Give us the clickbait. 740,000 kilometers of fishing line from one fishery alone, long line fishing alone, is lost to the global ocean each and every year. That's enough to go to the moon and back or to circle the earth 18 plus times. Wow. That's there's your factoid. There's that, your... That's, that's just one... That's a long that's from, line. That's, that's one long fishery. line fishing. From one... Yeah. F- Oh, so that's all the commercial fisheries yep. that do long line. Yes. And okay. within that, so long lines, the way they are set out is you run out a line and it has Oops. a series of other lines that are hanging off it. You've got a headline and then branch lines and they all have hooks. And so with that estimate, it means that it's around 14 billion hooks a year. So that's one fishery. And then it's 25 million pots and traps. And again, remember, this is commercial fishing. So these are the fishers that can't afford to lose their gear, right? Because they're operating close to the margin. They've got to make a profit. They've got to catch enough fish. And nobody wants this stuff to be lost out there, right? Like it's deadly. It's destructive. It costs us our food protein resource to the moon and back it's I mean, bizarre it's just, and, and it's, there's other numbers like seventy-eight thousand square kilometers of purse sign nets and gill nets which yeah. is just 
if anyone's ever seen them, they, they just trap everything. And 215 square kilometers of bottom trawl nets, which is just horrifically devastating. And that's just what's being lost every year. That's every single year. And so if you think about it, so the other thing is, how did we get this information? Well, instead yeah, that's of- exactly what I was going to ask uh, you. Yeah. 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 So instead of saying, oh, well, you know, we think there's this many people fishing. We think there's this many fishing boats, you know, which you can actually only measure the big boats because the small fishers, you know, you can't get as good- an an estimate or number of those. We actually went out and interviewed fishers from the seven major fisheries, you know, long line, pursane, trawl, pot and trap, those sorts of things. And we actually went out and talked to fishers and said, how much gear do you lose? And when and where and how and why, under what conditions were, were are you? Skeptical of you? So it wasn't me going out and asking them. You know, we're a little bit more clever than that, even though it, it seems hard to believe. It's, it's the I haven't lost any at all. What are you talking about? Right, so like, we're not going out there to say like, what are you doing? You know, what we did is actually went, carried out surveys, asking the same questions of fishers in their native tongue, in their country. So went to the dock and talked to people who are actually fishing. And so when we do that in a Spanish speaking country, we have a Spanish speaker who's there asking them, typically somebody who's from that country. So you don't have an Ocean Protect t-shirt no, on? No, I don't have an no. Ocean Protect t-shirt on and, and I'm not hey, going out there. But. How much fish line have you lost? But, but are you okay. confident that they're actually being honest with you? Yeah, what's well, in it for them to lie? I just, because people it, just but, lie well, for no reason. Sure. And actually, if you want to evaluate that, what you do is you ask a couple of bounding questions so that you can understand how people are likely to respond to things. And you build that into your survey, which we did, so that you can actually try to check some of that statistically or analytically. But, you know, what we asking things like, hey, do you mind if we talk to you? And is that okay? And how much gear do you lose? Why do you think you lose the gear? What are the things that affect it? And Sometimes it's as a conversation rather than having them fill out a form because not everybody has the same literacy or numeracy capability. So, you know, we just actually go out and talk to them, but ask the same questions of people. And it's not that we're an official trying to shut them down or judge them. It's just, hey, can we learn from you? Will you share your knowledge with us? And people generally actually want to share their knowledge. I mean, it's interesting. So as we talk about this, it reminds me that I was in Peru a few years ago doing some beach work and working with local communities and industry partners there. And we were in this super remote village. It's just where our beach survey ended up. And there's a guy out there and he's just picking up plastic. I speak Spanish, so I'm just asking him like, hey, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm a fisherman. He's like, and there we're getting plastic out there in the ocean and it's getting in the fish and we need to clean this up. And it's just this guy hanging out in the middle of nowhere in this little portside village. And he knows about the issue of plastic pollution. He knows that it's a problem in the ocean and in the sea. He knows that it's affecting his catch. And he's out there being a local custodian, like just taking care of his local community. And to me, that's actually heartening to see the depth of that information being transmitted and that people everywhere are starting to understand and to care about what's happening in our oceans in their own backyard. So we interviewed fishers in Central and South America, and here I am out on a beach, super remote, and there's just this local guy out there picking it up, doing his thing, taking care of it. And I wish he didn't need to do that because I wish the area was clean. And at the same time, the message is getting out there, right? Oh, for sure. The new science is coming out every every day around the the magnitude of the problem is horrific, but the public awareness and real passion. Oh, it's changed so much in the last few years. It's amazing. Can I I ask you, so- you start looking at this 15 years ago. Look how it's turned me gray. Oh, <laughs> oh please. 
Was there any media coverage about plastic pollution when you first started investigating? Oh my gosh, nobody ago? was interested. No, I mean, we didn't have big grants. We didn't have lots of people knocking down our door to do this work. We're just kind of plugging away, plodding along because we think it's really important and we think we need to do something about this. When it started becoming mainstream media, did you find it easier to get money for your research? Yeah, I would argue or I guess I would hope that part of what has changed the dial on that is the research that we've done. You know, we're putting out information into the global community that's rigorous, robust, repeatable and evaluated by other people that's highlighting these things. You know, like, yep, we're the ones that published something that says up to 99% of seabird species will have eaten plastic by 2050. Another boom soundbite. Yeah. We're the ones that say that 14 pieces of plastic increase the chance of a turtle dying from eating plastic to 50%. These are facts and figures that Stimulate conversation. They do stimulate conversation. And I mean, hopefully that science is part of what's furthered the awareness, furthered the interest and furthered the understanding that it really is everywhere all the time growing these exponential amounts, like the paper that came out last week by Marcus Erickson and team and that mentioned that there's 170 trillion pieces of plastics floating on the ocean surface or at the top of the ocean. Like, that's crazy, right? Stuff is breaking down. It's big stuff breaking down. It's some small stuff that's getting out there. You're so true. I mean, if you go back four or five years ago, whenever you first started at at OP, if something got published from CSIRO, we would then put that straight into our presentations. Of course. And we would go out and we would sing that to the masses. Where we would say, I mean, I can't remember some of the early facts from your research, but we would be like, great, put it in. And then we would tell our engineering customers when we would go out and present or whoever we were talking to, we would start off with that clickbait and you'd just see one go. More than five pieces of plastic for every meter of coastline around Australia for every single person, right? Yeah. And I remember one of the key stats that Jeremy would remember was, and it was a paper by, (laughs) (laughs) there was a paper by, co-authored by uh, Denise was, that the vast majority of plastic on Australian beaches is from Australia. It's coming from us, people, this whole presumption. And I realize it's a different story on the top end. I realize it's a different story in parts of WA and those sorts of things. So it doesn't mean that's every single place. Absolutely. But the lion's share of what we find is really within our quote unquote neighborhood or community, right? It's it's not more than 10 kilometers or that sort of thing away often. It's coming from us, people. We can't point the fingers and blame it on somebody else. And I think that's really important to remember. The important thing about that to me is that's actually a positive thing, right? That's a story of hope because it means then we can manage it. We can deal with it. We can deal with it in our own backyard. We don't need to be focusing hundreds or thousands of kilometers away. Like we can do stuff locally that makes a big difference. And that's much quicker, much less expensive and much more effective. And getting back to that, the science driving change element, I'm particularly keen to talk about the, the fishing nets. The numbers are just out of this world. How do we turn that around? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So I think there are some very specific things that we know are effective. Their buyback programs in ports tend to be incredibly effective. And so if we make it easier for fishers to return their gear rather than dumping it overboard, that makes a really big difference. So in Australia, we have really well-managed fisheries. We don't have those types of losses, obviously. Most of what ends up on Australia's shores is coming from elsewhere. That is true. We need and want to work with our northern neighbors, actually, and we need to support port waste facilities or enabling conditions for that, not just within Australia, but in other parts of the world. You know, I think that's really, really valuable. Again, putting a price on plastic. So making that material have value. And we know that there are industries and there are industries in particular countries and parts of the world where they actually want to turn derelict fishing gear into carpet tiles. There's also a company named Burio that they make skateboards and sunglasses and things like that from recovered fishing nets. And so there are some niche markets and those sorts of things. I think we need to not penalize fishers for bringing them back. Another approach might be to actually provide low interest loans to fishers. So when they bring the gear back at end of life, then maybe they can get a really low interest loan to replace their gear rather than keeping it going when it's got holes, when it's about to break or when it becomes more brittle and those sorts of things. So let's do things to support fishers. They want to do the right thing. They're not making a killing. We need to have sustainable fish stocks. We don't want fishing gear to be out there fishing indiscriminately. And that's what happens, right? Those nets last for years years or decades. And there's a couple old photos that I've seen from underwater where you can actually see one and two meter high piles of bones on the floor of the ocean beneath a net because it's just that many animals that have hit it, drowned, died, disintegrated, dropped to the bottom. Another animal, you know, and you can literally see piles of bones like that. We don't want that. We don't want that to be what happens in our marine world. We don't want to lose that fishing protein that's so important for feeding the world's people either, right? I mean, there's a lot of reasons that that's just dumb. Mm. Those are some of the things that we can do that make a difference, right? Port facilities working to close the supply chain loops and make sure that shipping companies that are coming into port, that they can actually return to where they came from with the waste or the refuse or the old fishing nets and those sorts of things. And let's turn those into other products. Let's make it work. Do you talk to the producers of the fishing net? So one of the things I would really, really be keen to do, and we haven't been able to crack this one yet, is to get the global net sales every single year from the world's major fishing net manufacturers to work with them to really help close that loop. And I think that's an obvious thing to do. I could imagine it would be a good business proposition for them as well to say, we will take this material at the end of life. And, you know, absolutely working again. That's that partnership of working with industries and treating people as collaborators and not from an oppositional viewpoint, which I think is really how we build successful collaborations and how we're going to be much better able to address some of this stuff. Like, let's make it a benefit. They all sound wonderful initiatives. And there's a whole bunch of wonderful initiatives that we can be implementing locally and and abroad. 
but they'll take money and resources. From my perspective, there's nowhere near the amount of resources money being dedicated to protecting our oceans from this scourge of plastic pollution. And the point I made literally the day before the Ocean uh, Plastic Action Forum the Australian government committed $368 billion to submarines. We think nothing of spending billions on road upgrades, highway upgrades, tearing down football stadiums to build new football stadiums. I think a lot about those things, actually. Well, I don't watch footy, so sorry. Um, yeah. You can tell I'm not from here just yeah. by, by that. Why isn't there more of a splurge of investment to better protect our oceans, yes, recognising yeah. that we are absolutely fundamentally dependent on them? The oceans absorb nine times of the uh, the global warming that's home to 90% of the uh, life on Earth. Every second breath we take comes from our oceans. If we kill the oceans, we kill ourselves. All these statistics we know, our oceans are absolutely suffering, overfishing, uh, plastic pollution, etc. But yet we just don't. So the ocean seems away and other Mm. to most, right? Like we live on land and I think it's easy to... We live on planet Earth. Yeah, you know, but I think that we think of the oceans as once it's there that it's just gone or away. I mean, I was talking with somebody I I met, I don't know, I was in Hawaii and... So glamorous, Peru, Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wow. Well, this was some, She's it was star. a marine debris yeah, meeting. What can I say? <laughs> but it was really interesting. You know, we were talking about the nuclear spill in Japan some years ago. And I was like, what do you think happens to all that? And he's like, oh yeah, well, it just goes in the ocean. He's like, well, the ocean just takes care of it. And for me, I was just, you know, blown away that we're not understanding some of those relationships and things. That said, protection and national security is really important. So I think you're going to have a hard time arguing and getting a lot of political ground to say like, we shouldn't have submarines. Instead, we should do this. I'm saying, hey, look, that's important for sure. Mm. But you know, whilst uh, whilst it's open... Throw some cash at protecting our oceans. Okay, but let's okay, let's look at the timeline on that. Okay. Look, we had a conversation about last night. The new submarines don't start for ten years. You know, like it's a ten to fifteen year play. We don't have ten to fifteen years before Mother Nature's gonna really implode. Thank goodness on us. we have that UNEA resolution and that we have the countries coming together to make a decision to say that we are going to treat and address thirty percent of our oceans. Well that we're gonna deal with it in the next couple of years. And that means we're going to start looking at the whole life cycle of plastics. And so we're going to have similar requirements and boundaries and legislation and guidelines in the countries around the world. So that's not just that the wealthy countries are able to do something and then we're going to send our trash to places other. It's that we are going to start dealing with this as a global community. My point is this. And that's not in 10 years, right, okay, Jeremy? Yeah, okay, like that, that's sure, like, that's happening. Sure. Okay, that's fine. That's happening. And we'll make a resolution. Then we'll try this and we'll do this. And I'm not being negative. I'm just saying this. <laughs> this is for security of a country. And for 10 to 15 years, we'll have eight nuclear submarines roaming around Australia, keeping us from the threat from Russia and China or whatever. In 10 to 15 years, if, if we don't make drastic changes, sea level rising, catastrophic weather oh, we've events. Got a, you know, we've we're got gonna plenty be of environmental Exactly. We're going to be challenges. worried about a lot more things than protecting our own country because it'll be 50 degrees in Australia. There'll be no food, you know, like... Oh, absolutely. For me, it's a far greater clear and present danger in yeah, environmental it's, destruction it's great than uh, a Harrison war on Ford. Russia. Yeah. <laughs> clear and present danger. You can't handle the truth. No, that's, that's, that's a different film. Different movie, yeah. yeah. I didn't kill my wife. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> Are you mixing metaphors, gentlemen? Uh, I'm just throwing it. Are you going to sing Willy Wonka <laughs> now? Oh, would you like me to? I would love you to. Go. 
pure imagination. Da 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 da. Oompa loompa. What you will listen to me. Oh, there we go. If but, we're wise, we'll listen to it, you. I'm, go. I'm, trying, I'm trying to find a segue. But yeah, if we're wise, <laughs> we'll listen to the people uh, trying to have a conversation. Denise, Jeremy, Brad, the the, the schoolgirl for yesterday, are trying to raise say. awareness around this issue. Uh, they feel very despondent, helpless, dare I say, recognizing that this obvious dilemma facing humanity is knocking on our doorsteps. And basically, people are fighting pretend wars with submarines that oh. are probably going to be useless in, in 10, 20 years' time anyway. And oh, look, I can't vote, so I can say whatever I want. But that, <laughs> that, that politician yesterday saying back to that girl, um, just shout louder. That was wrong. So can we bring it back to what you were just saying about some of the comments that really stuck with the show yeah, questions yeah, were from this sure. from this young woman? And what we also ended the day with was this fantastic panel of solutions. Mm. We're looking at Ulu, who's making seaweed-based packaging that has the qualities and characteristics of plastic in that it's light, it's flexible, it has the oxygen permeability that we need for food products and those sorts of things, I presume. I don't know. I haven't looked under the hood of Ulu. So we see that. And then we see a refill market company who wants, who's trying to make it easier for that. We see this wonderful young woman, Australian of the year, New South Wales. Australian. What do you, DL? Yeah. Shout out. Yeah. yeah. You know, and she's looking at this business model to try to bring products that otherwise, or pieces of products that otherwise get wasted and get that material to be recovered. Mm. And right now that's working with volunteers, which amazing, huge kudos to these incredible volunteers. What are we going to do to support some of these businesses and to turn them into functioning viable businesses that are not reliant upon the goodwill and the volunteer yeah, yeah, effort, yeah, hours yeah. and time? Yeah. You know, we are seeing creativity in the market. We are seeing some changes. We do have a book that's coming out in... I think on the 3rd of Sh July. Shameless plug. Well, I, it, well, it's so funny, but it's actually, it's not about us. The book is What's actually, it called? it's called Ending Plastic Waste and it's solutions Love from it. the informal sector from countries around the world. So it's, it. and all we did was ask people and get them to share what they're doing. And then we had somebody who was willing to write a chapter about innovative financing from Asia Development Bank. But so we're hearing from the grassroots organizations that are helping solve the problem in ways that are socially, culturally, economically, and environmentally appropriate in their context. And the, how can that be scaled? So yes, the book, I want to see it yeah, out there. What, Actually, what's, I what's want the name to, of it? It's it Ending Plastic Waste. It's coming out on CSIRO Publishing. It's also going to be published by another publisher internationally. And what I would like to see, my dream would be to see that book on the desk of every environment minister in the world. You know, okay, I want go. people to look at what's already been being done and reach out to those groups and those communities because that's what it's about. This book is about highlighting the ingenuity of what people are already doing in different places. What, what chapter are we in that book? <laughs> we were at the forward, I thought. Yeah. No, I think, I think so. United Nations pipped you for that oh, forward bugger, chapter. Bugger. I'm sorry, gentlemen. It's political. And it's we were, <laughs> and we we're focusing on the, from the informal yeah. sector, from the informal okay. sector, right? Right? Because we need and want to highlight the amazing things that are happening they there. They don't like man buns. No, they don't. Hey, just, um, That's a top knot, isn't it, Brad? Flipping back to yesterday. I don't want to talk about Brad's no, man bun no, on, in the public area. I'm sorry. Tunnels. You threw out a fact, which I was like, well, what are you talking about? Um, and you were saying, mm -hmm. and don't, I don't quote, but you'll quote it, 92% of 
place that comes back onto the shoreline? So what, what you say? that's you what we estimate from, you know, and so I will admit that paper is not published yet. And so yeah. I probably am, you know. Not peer reviewed? No, not peer reviewed yet. You talk up. Yeah. 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 So I'm, I'm interested so, to see how, so how we, that's So working. what we find, we've done, you know, there's been studies led by amazing students we've worked with and people and, you know, that we're working with and where we look at what's on our coastline. How much gets resuspended? How much gets moved around? Where is it on the coastline? Is it down by the water's edge? Is it at the rack line or the high tide or the dominant debris line? Is it stuck in the backshore vegetation? And really, when we look at that and when we, what we know about winds and waves and currents, it's actually really hard for that trash to get out there into the ocean. You've got to go against all these, you know, like I said, the wind and the waves, you know, when you're going out for your morning swim at Bondi or wherever your local beach is when you're not here, you know, manly. You've got to get out there. And so, yes, it happens, right? Like when we had the tsunami in Japan, whole docks, a motorcycle made its way to Western North America in six months. So stuff definitely gets out there. But most of it actually gets trapped in our shoreline, in the coastline, in that backshore vegetation. And so cleanups work. It's that we do cleanups accumulation areas, like where that stuff just keeps getting dumped, right? You know, these are that's what these gyres or eddies or whatever you want to call them are, and they keep getting dumped back out there. But yeah, we estimate that around 90 to 92% of it is actually getting trapped on our shorelines, in our coastlines, along the edges of our waterways. Right? That, that's a huge... Right. That's but that's huge. heartening. That, that's that huge. Really well, that is right? heartening. It, well, of course it is, because it means that we can... We can deal with we it. Can we deal with all it. want to be dealing with we're, this we're, way further eight, upstream. We've got 8% out in, in the ocean. But if you look at that, you know me, Report from mm. 2000 and oh. mm. whatever it was. Yeah. They were saying what, 2% of, of yeah, pollution uh, on the. Only about 1% is at the ocean surface, and I thought mm. only about 5% or thereabouts was going back onto our shorelines. And they were saying, nine, yeah. And no, about 94% is actually um, on, the, on the bottom of the ocean. Okay, so the first thing you have to talk about is that stuff that's on the bottom of the ocean, by definition, sinks. So it's negatively buoyant. And so the stuff that's going to be on the bottom of the ocean is in general, probably going to be pretty close to shore if most of our plastic that's getting out there goes out from land, right? And so, and we did a study with led by Justine that actually estimates, I think it's like 25 to 35 times more plastic on the seabed floor than is estimated floating on the surface of the ocean. Now that was before Marcus's new paper came out. So, you know, those how we compare things and that sort of thing is really important. Plastic that's negative or neutrally buoyant, it actually goes up and down throughout the water column. It gets, you know, biofouled and those sorts of things. But most of what's going to sink is going to sink close to where it entered yeah. the system yeah, by definition, right? Yeah. Like, it's, So when we say it's 94% is on the seabed, it could actually potentially likely to be within the very near shore environment. Right. And so that's why right. things that like, so there's yeah, organizations, you know, Patty Aware, the dive group that yeah, they're yeah. out there, they're out there doing seabed floor cleanups. And again, we analyzed volunteer cleanup data from coastal cleanups, from international coastal cleanup, you know, from Ocean Conservancy with what is found from Patty's citizen science cleanup from diving and you're going to dive in places where it's relatively shallow, where you can get to and those sorts of things to remove that. And we find some items are really similar between what we find on land and on the seabed floor, but there's a lot of things that are really different too. And it, again, that makes sense because things that we find on the bottom of the sea are things that are going to sink, right? Yeah, wow. So, That's yeah, so interesting. And, yeah. and, and I think what stuff's, well, stuffed me up is the infographic on that paper. Yes. It shows it as it deep sea. Deep sea. Yeah. And then if you really think about it, it's like, a, you know, turtles. Yeah, turtles, you know, try and little hatchlings come out and then they've got to get out into their currents. 
I mean, they'll get eaten. They'll, I mean, it's very hard work for a turtle. What about a bit of neutrally buoyant plastic? I mean, that's, mm. how's that mm. going to get from Moreton Bay out to the middle of the ocean? You know? Well, and actually, what's it going to do when it gets out there? So things go through the gyres and come back out the other side, right? It, it doesn't just, well, it doesn't just stay out there forever. And gyres aren't stationary. They're not stagnant. They're moving. They're so it's huge. Just, it's, yeah, but it, it, it also gets, shoop, pop back out the other side, right? I mean, again, think about the tsunami and the stuff from Japan. It mm, made yeah. it through the gyre and then got shot out the gyre, made it to the west coast of North America in, you know, some stuff in eight or six months, 10 months, and then stuff, some stuff a couple of years later. So it doesn't just sit in there forever either, right? I mean, the other thing, I think the really important thing to me about the gyres and the focus there is by definition, it's the most expensive, least effective way to try to clean something up. And it's where we've already passed the high biodiversity areas because the high biodiversity areas are along the continental shelves and those sorts of things where we have our whales and dolphins and marine mammals and turtles and seabirds foraging and all those things is off our continental shelves where we have those big differences in, you know, there's seamounts and all those sorts of things. And so where we really care about it is as close to upstream as possible, obviously before it hits the ocean, but within the ocean, within the coastal margin, and then out to the continental shelves, because that's where the that's biodiversity lives. That's a good point, basically. And, and, you know, if you look at the work that Boy and Slant's done out um, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, you're saying that the amount of biodiversity out there is minimal. Well, it's well, mu it's much lower than much when lower, it's going to be yeah. passing through those areas. And also, like, by design, again, you could not design something that's more expensive and less likely to be effective. Think about the carbon costs of getting a ship to go out and clean up the, you know, the surface of the ocean. Have you ever tried to pick up a fish in a jar, like, with your hand? Like, it's, it's really yeah. hard. Yeah. It's but, not but, easy. But, but, but yeah. hey, and it came up yesterday, he's getting huge money thrown at him. Because, you know, let's face it, he's out there doing this amazing job on, you know, on the surface. Super sound sexy, right? So people exactly, want. It's amazing. Uh, people jump on well, board Well, this that. is amazing. Let's give money to this. And people love the idea of a technology solution. And there's a huge role for technology. And we're not going to out technology our way out of this issue. A lot of it is really focusing on old school stuff. Old school becomes cool, going back to some of the things that we products we were using before the last couple or a few decades. You know, yeah, design okay. with a legacy how, mindset. How does that go down? Like the principal scientists at CSIRO leading the marine debris campaign for CSIRO, which is Australia's leading scientific organization, says the ocean cleanup could not be more expensive and less effective. It's just a fundamental... By design. By design. Right? I mean, literally, you're going as far as you can where things are going to be older, smaller, more difficult to clean up, and it's more expensive to get there, and it's more expensive to get it back, and the fuel cost of getting a ship out there. But how does that go down pol politically, like or even with the, the all-powerful groups that are funding him and giving him gazillions yeah, of well, money? Well, yeah, exactly. I wouldn't think that... I would not expect that my perception on that as a scientist has much of a basis but for what should, funders should, are choosing should, well, hold on. to but, spend okay, their resources. Look, I'm sure there's other great scientists like you around the world. You know, we think you're the best, but you know, I'm sure there's, <laughs> other, I'm sure there's you others. You guys are so sweet. I'm sure, sure Boyan <laughs> has hired heaps of scientists. Has, has someone tapped him on the shoulder and going, hey, bro, maybe we could use this money elsewhere to better effect? Well, so one of the things that you've seen his organization do is to pivot, as we yeah. say. So now they're focusing the on rivers and doing river cleanups and that sort of thing with the acknowledgement that 
But they're know. still not acknowledging it. They're still they're, no. they're, they're still doing the ocean cleanup. Now they've gone to the interceptors. And and look, when when they first came out, we were pretty vocal about it too on the podcast and, you know, just in general. About legions of fans. About legions of fans, <laughs> exactly. He's right. He's gone to the rivers and, and rightfully so. But even the river interceptors, Stop. I'm like. They're, they're a direct screen di- in a waterway environment. They do not work. Well, okay. what's really interesting to me is you can spend $1,000 on a, one of those super low cost rubbish traps over a river and a hundred thousand dollars you could buy a hundred of those and put those in places all up and downstream in some of these countries where we really need it or we can build and buy another big expensive boat okay but to do it but it doesn't have the same market that's what it comes down to is that i remember looking a lot at what boyan was doing back in the day and his idea was to get that plastic, bring it back to shore, and to sell it. Boy, and what, what are you trying to do? Save the planet, or are you going to try and create a market for yourself? That was his plan, to get that plastic back to shore, and the technology will be there, as we're starting to learn, to then sell that and make money. Well, it wasn't actually super new technology that was being used, too, right? Like, that's the way that we do oil spill cleanups with some of that stuff. It's So a lot of it's adapting what has been out there into a new purpose. Well, great segue to greenwashing then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, we could have a a whole podcast series on on greenwashing, but I actually want to talk about one final thing was... What what do you mean final? We've got hours. (laughs) (laughs) You've just come back from the Philippines. Yeah. And and Philippines is often labelled as the world's worst plastic polluting country. What were you doing there? And is there a reason to think that Philippines are going to change their ways and get lose the mantle of the most plastic producing Well, so they weren't listed in the top 20 from the paper that came out in 2015, Uh, but then in something recent that was addressing it, you know, I mean, I found it kind of amazing because I think they said that the Philippines... Was the worst. Well, not only is it the worst, but that it was, I think, listed as more than 10 or 20 times more lost to the environment than some of the other countries within the region, which I would find surprising given the population density and and my experience. So I've worked in a lot of these countries. So what was I doing in the Philippines? We have this amazing project supported by Australian government and at the request of the Philippines government to support them to understand how much and where and what types of waste are being lost into the environment in the Philippines. And so we're working with government groups, research, you know, institutions and agencies within the Philippines to support them to know what's going on in their country, in their backyard, so that they can put into place the legislation, the incentives, the rules that are going to work within their context. And so we have a couple of years to go out there. We're building capacity. We're working with these fantastic people on the ground so that then they can be the leaders, they can be training, and that they can have that knowledge and information and to use it in the thing to me that they're doing that's really smart is that they want to do it in a way that they can compare what's going on in the Philippines with what's going on in other countries around the world. And that's one of the things that we've been doing and working on for so many years. So we've been working to support and build capacity in Cambodia, Vietnam, South American countries across the Asia Pacific. And so to work with the Philippines from the ground up is really, really important and really, really valuable. And one of the things that's exciting to me is that their president, apparently, so I didn't hear the speech, but... Did you meet the president? 
the president of the Philippines, made a statement that we're going to clean up this mess. We're going to solve this problem and we want to tackle plastic pollution in the Philippines. And so when we have that highest level of government speaking up and speaking out and making that commitment, then we see that filter down to the other levels and layers of government in the Philippines. And I think that stands in really good stead to get a really strong baseline, to be able to measure change as it happens, as new policies come into play, as there's new practices and activities and campaigns. And we're hoping to work with an amazing Australian-based organization, which you all may have heard of, a fantastic organization called Plastic Free July. So we want to partner with them not just within Australia with some of the great work they're doing, but in other places like the Philippines to help bring their story and their messaging that's so effective and really resonates with people. So that's one of the things I'm really excited that about. So cool. That is so mm. cool to hear, like on, on a number of fronts. Number one, the fact that the Australian government is helping uh, Philippines to to help address this problem. Number two, the fact that you've got political leadership saying, yeah, look, we're going to try Let's and solve this problem. Yeah. Uh, thirdly, recognising They've got a problem and also leading with science to better understand that problem to help uh, address appropriate solutions, as opposed to the historical behavior of some countries, bury your head in your sand and sand, ignore the problem. It's someone else's problem. Just going to ignore it. Or what we often see is, oh, let's just throw some cash at a sexy looking solution that doesn't work. Well, the other thing, though, that you didn't highlight about this, you mentioned those three great things, but we also, the real focus is collaboration, Mm. which is one of the things that you all talk about and that we've talked about and and it was the really (laughs) y'all that y'all focus on you know and it was really the theme of yesterday's amazing event is about collaboration and so the fact that it's not just us going in there we're supporting people who've learned what we're doing who are out there leading and training and you know working with these different agencies working with these universities supporting the next generation of young scientists to become the leaders and you know that is super heartening and really rewarding for me to be involved in. I love that. And look, and Jeremy will attest to this, like potentially one of the highlights of, of our job is getting to collaborate with various individuals. And and certainly top of that group is CSIRO and obviously particularly you, Denise, like we're big fans of you. Likewise, guys. You're a super superstar. <laughs> <laughs> and look, it, it, loses, superstar. Doesn't it, it loses a little meaning, doesn't it, super, it Jeremy? Super, super, I mean, it's come up with a new it's one, been mate. a real honour and a privilege to spend the last few days with you and obviously hang out in particular the Ocean Plastic Action Forum, which I'm sure there'll be another one. Come along next time. It's, look, a it's a great been, event. Yeah, absolutely. And look, it's been fantastic talking to you today. Keep up the great work. Oh, we love Denise. We love everything you guys do. We love your team. We love talking to anyone at, at CSIRO. We, we, we really do. But on a personal note, yeah, I mean, you inspire Brad and I, you inspire a hell of a lot of people and mm. you don't necessarily take that on board. You just carry on. And I think I said, it, said to you last night, you've got this rudder of- um, <laughs> I'm just a science geek you know, doing my you, thing. You, you know what you can't <laughs> say, but you know what you can say, but you, you, you run that very nice line and communicate your science really well, which helps mm. us all better understand the problem. Therefore, go away, have a think about it, come up with solutions, come back and you can knock those solutions down again, but we will keep trying. So thank you from the bottom of our heart. Thank you guys. Keeping up the good fight. Boom, boom. Shake the room. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.